The Coram Deo Church community is a missional church rooted in historic, biblical Christianity and committed to cultural engagement. We hope the message you are about to hear spurs you to deeper reflection on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. This morning's scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. The word of God for the people of God. I don't know if you realize this, but Christmas Day was less than two weeks ago. Doesn't it feel like a lot longer than that ago? I mean, Christmas was so last year, wasn't it? We've all moved on. It's a new year. You're all doing new things. I want to remind you that in the historic practice of the church, Christmas is a feast that lasts for 12 days, from December 25th to January 6th. That's why the song, The 12 Days of Christmas, it's a reference to the Christian worship calendar. Maybe you didn't know that. Uh, And at the end of that 12 days is Epiphany, which commemorates the visit of the wise men. And so I get to preach this morning on this famous story in the Gospel of Matthew. Perhaps you are familiar with that Christmas song, We Three Kings of Orient Are. Just want to notice, if you listened to that Bible reading, it didn't say there were three of them. They aren't kings, nor are they from the Orient. So don't get your theology from songs. Make sure you get it from the Bible, okay? Um, So let's explore what actually happened in this story. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to Matthew chapter two. And as you do, I wanna give you a very encouraging um, giving update since the year has ended. Um, Got some good news for you. First of all, we finished last year ahead of budget in our giving, which is always great. So that's good news. Even better news is that the facility 2.0 giving as of the end of last year is $454,000. 
And that's great. Uh, we're, yeah, you, it's okay to be celebrate that. Um, we, we need to raise $2 million by the end of 2024, and we're already 23% of the way there. And so praise God for a great 2023, and uh, let's continue our generosity together in 2024. If you um, pay attention at all to sort of the common narrative out there in the world around us about religion, it generally goes something like this. Uh, the world is getting more and more secular. Um, religion is on the decline. In fact, you as an individual human being are kind of odd for being here today because I guess you can be in the church if you want to be, but... Most people in our culture, especially the intelligent people, the enlightened people, have kind of moved on from religion. That's a very common narrative in our world today. However, what's interesting about that narrative is that the facts tell a very different story. According to the Pew Research Center, the percentage of the world's population that is religious continues to rise. By 2050, six out of 10 people in the world will be either Christian or Muslim. Only 13% will claim no religion. Furthermore, by 2060, more than 40% of the world's Christians will live in Africa, while fewer than a quarter of the world's Christians will live in Europe and North America. So why does religion continue to grow? Despite all the secularization around us, why do human beings everywhere continue to turn to religion? The answer is because we're hungry for meaning. The story of the wise men is a story about the human quest for meaning. Matthew introduces the story this way. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. These wise men are on a religious quest. They have come to worship. So let's meet the characters in the story so that we can make sense of it together. First of all, we're introduced to Herod the king. Who is this guy? Well, Herod was the provincial governor of Judea from 37 BC to 4 BC. Herod's father had been a shrewd local politician who had backed Julius Caesar in the Roman Civil War against Pompey. And in return for his loyalty, Caesar appointed his son Herod as governor of Galilee, the region where Jesus and his family had lived. A few years later, when Julius Caesar was murdered by Brutus and Cassius, Herod fled to Rome and gained the favor of the Senate, who gave him control over even more territory, Galilee and Judea together, and gave him the title King of the Jews, which the Jews hated because Herod was not a Jew, nor had they picked him to be their king. That's just who the Romans had put in charge. Rodney Stark, famous historian from Baylor University, writes this, during his reign, Herod ran through 10 wives, and had at least three of his own sons murdered. He was both a tyrant and a suspected pagan. Not a great human being and not beloved by the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. There was tension between Herod and the Jewish leaders. So 
The first thing Matthew wants us to know is these are the days in which this happened, the days when Herod was king of Judea. Now, the second characters we come upon in this story are wise men from the east. Who are these wise men? How are we to understand them? Well, the actual word used here is the word magi. In fact, some English translations just keep that word. So on the page in front of you, it may just say magi. And to be honest, wise men is kind of a weird English translation for the word magi because magi spoke of a specific kind of people. The Magi were Zoroastrian astrologers. Rodney Stark again. The Magi were a guild of professional Persian priests and astrologers. They were widely acknowledged throughout the classical world, even by such famous authors as Plato and Pliny, as able to decipher omens and forecast the future. The Magi are pagan star worshipers. In fact, if you are familiar with the zodiac, the dividing of the sky into 12 astral signs, this comes to us from the Magi. They are the original New Age astrologers. That's who the Magi are. And this is where the story starts to get really fascinating because Matthew tells us that they have come to Jerusalem following a star. The Magi believed that each of the 12 signs of the Zodiac represented a different part of the world. And Pisces, the sign of the fish, represented Syria and Palestine, the land Herod the Great ruled over. We know from history, not from scripture, that in 7 BC, the planets Jupiter and Saturn appeared together in Pisces which was the first time in 800 years that that had happened. That would have led these astrologers to deduce that something important was happening in Palestine. Not only that, but one year later, Chinese astronomers record a nova that lasted for over 70 days. Now, in case it's been a while since you took science... Let me read to you from Wikipedia what a nova is. A nova is a transient astronomical event that causes the sudden appearance of, catch this, a bright, apparently new star that slowly fades over weeks or months. After the peak, the brightness declines steadily. Fast novae typically will take fewer than 25 days to decay while slow novae will take more than 80 days. So what I'm telling you is that in the final years of Herod's reign, not one but two very unusual astronomical events took place. Events that would have been interpreted by Zoroastrian astrologers as a sign from God. That's all background to the story Matthew is telling us. Now, if you ask in this story, who are the model characters? Who are the protagonists? Who are the people who are held up for us to emulate? It's the Magi. They're the ones we are to learn from in the story. And so I want to discover this morning what the Magi teach us about revelation, what the Magi teach us about grace, and what the Magi teach us about Jesus. So that's the outline. That's the territory we want to cover this morning. 
First, what do the Magi teach us about Revelation? Let's enter into the story together. Matthew writes, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So I want you to notice that at this point in the story, we know a few things. We know these magi have seen a star. We know that they have interpreted the star as meaningful. In fact, they call it his star. They have concluded this star means something and they're coming to Jerusalem looking for he who has been born king of the Jews. Verse three, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled because that was his job title. And all Jerusalem with him because guess what? If Herod has a bad day, who else has a bad day? All of Jerusalem. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Because again, Herod is a pagan. He's not a Jewish man. He's not familiar with the scriptures. They told him, verse five, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And then they quote from Micah chapter five. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. We see here how God's revelation in creation and God's revelation in scripture work together. Frederick Dale Bruner, one of the Bible commentators who writes on the book of Matthew, writes this, the star brings us to Jerusalem, but only scripture brings us to Bethlehem. God's revelation in creation raises the questions and begins the quest. God's revelation in scripture gives a preliminary answer and directs the quest toward the goal. God's revelation in Christ satisfies the quest. Every human being is on a quest for meaning. And God in creation has given us material to begin that quest. He's raised the questions. As we look at the world around us, as we look at our own selves, we begin to ask questions. God's revelation in scripture gives preliminary answers and directs that quest toward the goal. And it's meant to be concluded as we understand God's revelation in Christ. God has written two books, the church fathers used to say, the book of nature and the book of scripture. And we have to read both books. And some people don't want to read one or the other. There are some people who don't want to read the book of scripture at all. They say, hey, the light of nature is all we need. All roads lead to God. All quests for meaning are important. All religions are functionally the same. Who needs the scripture? That's just one book from one people and one religion. Let's set that aside. We don't need that. But friends, I want you to notice that without scripture, the Magi don't get to Bethlehem. The light of the star takes them part of the way there, but only the light of scripture completes the journey. Here's how John Calvin put it really helpful metaphor he uses. He writes, just as old men and those with weak vision with the aid of spectacles will begin to read distinctly. So scripture gathering up the otherwise confused knowledge of God in our minds clearly shows us the true God. The human mind because of its feebleness can in no way attain to God unless it be aided and assisted by his sacred word. 
So the metaphor is spectacles, glasses. Those of you who wear lenses, whether glasses or contacts, know that without those, you can still see. You just can't see clearly. Nature does help us to see God, but our vision is blurry. It's confused. And without the spectacles of Scripture, we can't see God clearly. We've got to read the book of Scripture. Why? Because Scripture brings clarity to the knowledge of God that we receive through the natural world. But on the other hand, there are also people who don't think it's important to read the book of nature, who say that nature doesn't reveal anything about God or truth or reality. This is the mistake currently of the trans movement who claims that our bodies are not revelatory, they don't reveal anything about what's true. And this is also the mistake of certain fundamentalist Christians who claim that non-Christian sources don't reveal anything that's true. That if you didn't learn it in the Bible, then it's not reliable. Those two worldviews, which seem so far apart, are actually the same. They're both a denial of natural revelation. The Magi teach us a proper doctrine of revelation. God has revealed himself in creation and in scripture and ultimately in the person of Jesus Christ. By reading the book of nature, the Magi are led to the book of scripture, which then leads them to Bethlehem and to Christ. Friends, the beauty of this story is it reminds us that we serve a God who created the world and everything in it. And why did he create the world? Acts 17 reminds us he did so, so that people might seek him and find him. God is the creator. And what that means is everything he has made reveals truth about who he is and what he's like. Now it's truth that needs to be clarified and brought into focus with scripture. But because God is the creator and because this is his world, his world speaks to us of him. And the Magi remind us that by paying attention to what is, to the world God has made, we can find ourselves on the journey that then finds its fulfillment and culmination through the scriptures in Christ. So the wise men teach us a proper doctrine of revelation. God has revealed himself in nature and in scripture. But let's consider, secondly, what the Magi teach us about grace. The basic assumption almost every human being has is that God helps those who help themselves. That we do our part, and then, of course, God's grace does the rest and fills in the gaps. One famous medieval writer put it this way, if a man will do all he can, then God will give him grace. We got to do our part first. Then God fills in the rest. This story turns that logic on its head. God's grace is not God's response to our best effort. God's grace is God's initiative before we make any effort. Grace means God acts first. The Magi are seeking the Christ child because God has first sought the Magi. God put a star in the sky to draw these Magi to Jerusalem. The story of scripture is the story of a gracious God seeking and saving the lost. Those who aren't looking for him, those who aren't even sure how to find him, the scriptures are the story of God pursuing and saving 
people like that. And the basic drama of grace is the drama that people who didn't know what questions they should be asking or who didn't know what they were looking for find their way to Christ. And the interesting thing about the Bible's stories of grace is also that sometimes those who should be closest end up missing out because they're not aware of the grace of God. I want you to notice the little word behold in verse one. In the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. The word behold is a little interjection. It's an attention grabbing word. It's a word that you don't need. The sentence would read the same without it. It's an expression of surprise. I put those exclamation points on the slide as a way of sort of giving you the emotional tone of the text here. Hold on, what wise men from the east, why are they showing up? Why are they here in the story? Who expected that? These are not the people you'd expect to be seeking the king of the Jews. In fact, it's really unexpected if you've read the Old Testament at all. Let me take you back to Isaiah chapter 47, where the prophet Isaiah delivers a message of judgment to the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans are another word for the Magi, the pagan astrologers who were associated with Babylon and Persia. Here's what Isaiah 47 says. Sit in silence and go into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no more be called the mistress of kingdoms. Stand fast in your enchantments and your many sorceries with which you have labored from your youth. You are wearied with your many counsels. Let them stand forth and save you, those who divide the heavens, who gaze at the stars, who at the new moons make known what shall come upon you. They wander about, each in his own direction. There is no one to save you. What the prophet Isaiah is reminding us is that there's no light through pagan astrology. This is how the people of Israel were supposed to feel about the zodiac, about stargazers. There's no salvation there. There's no light there. There's no truth there. There's only wandering and confusion and darkness. And yet when God sends his only son into the world, who does he draw to Bethlehem? The Chaldeans. While God's people were to oppose the pagan practices of the nations and to not be okay with their idolatry and their false worship, God's people were also to long for the salvation of the nations. Likewise, you as a Christian should oppose the pagan practices of your neighbors and you should long for them to be drawn to Jesus by the grace of God. This is what God's grace does. It seeks and saves those who are far, those who seem like their practices would lead them into idolatry, those who seem like they're running away from God. Those are the people that God in his grace seeks and saves. See the prodigal son. See the lost sheep. See many of the parables Jesus told about how his grace works. Perhaps some of you saw that just a few months ago, the celebrity tattoo artist Kat Von D was baptized into the Christian faith. Some of you will know Kat Von D from the TV show LA Inc. By her own confession, just a few years ago, she was involved in occult practices, something that Christians should rightly oppose. 
But over the past few years, she began to turn away from those practices. And over the past 18 months, she's been on a profound journey that has led her to faith in Christ. And she posted on Instagram a video of her baptism, and it got a lot of engagement, both positive and negative. Here's what she said in a recent interview. It was really the Christians who were the worst. You would think that most Christians would be happy for you when you get baptized. It was one of the most important days of my life. So it was strange to be opposed by a handful of negative, critical Christians. Behold, Kat Von D, our sister in Christ. How great is the grace of God. Praise God for his grace in her life and in yours. Because if you love Jesus and worship him, do you know how you got there? The same grace that brought her and that brought the Magi and that's ever brought anyone to faith in Christ. The Magi teach us about the grace of God, that God is seeking those who are far from him, that before we go out in search of God, he's already come looking for us. Let's explore finally what the Magi teach us about Jesus. Verse nine, after listening to the king, they went on their way and behold, the star they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. I want you to imagine the scene. Three or five or seven or 10 or however many there were, grown adult human beings bowing low on their faces before an infant. What is a newborn baby going to do with gold and frankincense and myrrh? Like the point of those gifts is not to be useful or practical. The point is to show honor and reverence to this one. What the Magi show us about Jesus is that Jesus is worthy of your deepest worship and your best gifts. Jesus is worthy of your deepest worship and your best gifts. These Magi see the child and his mother, and they fall down and worship him. Have you responded to Jesus like the Magi? Have you fallen down before him in worship and adoration and love and surrender? I want you to remember, it's quite possible to be interested in Jesus, to be impressed with Jesus, to be intrigued by Jesus, to be provoked by Jesus without falling down before him. And the great danger for every one of us is that we'd be interested and intrigued and provoked by Jesus, but not fall down and worship him. The only response to God in human flesh is worship and adoration and gift giving and service and submission. Jesus is worthy of your deepest worship and your best gifts. 
These magi are not concerned about their dignity. They're not concerned what people might think if they see grown human beings bowing down before a little baby. They're not trying to satisfy a curiosity they have about what's going on in Judea. They're not taking selfies with the baby Jesus so they can go back and report to their friends what a cool experience it was. They're just worshiping. They're just falling down before him, offering him their finest gifts. The only fitting response to the majesty of God in human flesh is to fall on our faces in worship and to give all we have to his honor and service. Jesus is worthy of your deepest worship and your best gifts. Let us not be people who in a Western, intellectual, idea-oriented sort of way are intrigued by the very profound things Jesus has said. Rather, let us be people who fall down and worship him, who are humbled by him, who adore him, who want to give him our best because of what he is and who he is. The story concludes with this final verse, verse 12. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. An encounter with Jesus sets you on a different path. When you encounter Jesus, you can't go back the same way you came. The Magi go home a different way. Yes, Herod the king has given them a certain set of commands, but they've just met a king who's more glorious than Herod. And they go a different way and live a different kind of life. You can't encounter Jesus and go back the same way you came. So the Magi read the book of nature, which leads them to the book of scripture, which reveals God's grace in Jesus, which brings them to their knees in worship and adoration and sends them away on a different path. This is the Magi's encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. May it be ours as well. In 1481, the great master Leonardo da Vinci was asked to paint an artistic representation of the visit of the Magi. It's one of the earliest works of da Vinci. Here's the painting he created. If you ever go to Florence, you can see it in the Uffizi Gallery. I am really fascinated with what da Vinci's doing here. And if you can see, I know it's hard to see a little bit if you're sitting far away from the screens. In the background of the painting, if you ask, what's he doing artistically here? In the foreground is Mary and the child and the Magi kneeling. If you look at the background of the painting, what he's done is to set that scene in a background of horses and war and battle and devastation. And I think as an artist, da Vinci's doing something quite fascinating here. He's reminding us, this is the world Jesus came into. While the Magi are bowing before the child and offering him their best gifts, somewhere in the world, there's war, destruction, chaos, famine, and all kinds of evil breaking out. 
This is the world Jesus came into, a world marked by death and destruction and chaos. Da Vinci wants us to remember this isn't some holy scene that hovers above the world. This is the world God came into, the same world you and I live in, full of all kinds of evil and death and war and heartbreak. This is the world Jesus came into. And I think Da Vinci is also reminding us of this. And this is God's plan for the healing of that world. This is God's plan. The birth of a baby is God's plan for making all that's wrong right, for healing all that's broken, and for bringing peace to his world. This is God's plan. How strange, how unusual, how upside down, and how glorious. Let us follow the example of the Magi and adore Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this story in the Gospel of Matthew. We thank you for the reminder of what it means for us to learn from the Magi. The reminder of how you reveal yourself in both creation and in Scripture. The reminder of how you pursue lost people by your grace. And the reminder of what Jesus is worthy of and deserves from every human being. So God, this morning, might the Lord Jesus get more of our affection, more of our worship, more of our hearts, more of our best gifts. Might we find ourselves bowing low before him in homage and in honor. And in a world marked by chaos and war and evil and uncertainty, would you give us the faith and the courage to hold on to the hope that is offered in the birth of one child in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the Great, who is the hope of all the world. Help us embrace the joy of that hope. Help us live in the strength of that hope and help our lives be changed by the glory of that hope. We pray for our good and for your glory.